Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Reinir Indal here with me from Oslo. Uh, welcome to my podcast, Reinir, and I'm so happy to meet you here in Stockholm. It's great to be here. It's good to see you again. I love listening to your podcast, so <laughs> very, very happy to, to be here with you. Thank you. We released an episode with you March uh, 2018, and now uh, this is, I think, very... Uh, I'm so curious to really follow up and see how th- things have been going and so on, and also to see what learnings you have over the past years. And for those of you who don't know of Rainier, he is the founder and managing partner of Summa Equity, a Nordic private equity firm created in 2016 to invest in companies to solve global challenges. Since then, some 13 companies have been invested in. And previously, Rainier has been with Alter Equity Partners. Prior to that, he was CEO of a technology company and also consultant with McKinsey. Rainier, let's start with the most uh, important thing, actually, which is uh, the why. Why did you start Summa Equity and, and what was the purpose? We invest to solve global challenges. Why is that the purpose? Well, this started all for me uh, after the financial crisis. So uh, I didn't learn in, in school uh, and in my textbooks that a financial crisis could come. So, so that bothered me. And I went back into reading and trying to study why this was happening. And that also made me more concerned about the externalities that our financial system creates and uh, how companies are affecting both uh, the environmental issues, which were increasing at that point, and now it's uh, it's quite challenging for everyone, and also socially, with social inequalities uh, increasing and the challenges that we have in in society. So um, I started to become quite worried, and uh, at uh, one point turning 40 years old as well, uh, I looked myself in the mirror and asked myself, am I part of the problem or part of the solution? Uh, and I'm a problem solver. I like to figure out uh, how to solve things. And this was a pretty large challenge. So that's why for a while I was uh, a bit depressed about where, where the world was going. But then started to see the opportunities. These challenges create immense opportunities and uh, the financial system and investors can be a big force of driving that change. I decided to, to leave uh, private equity and started to work with, uh, with philanthropy and, and impact investing. And uh, when I got exposed to and see you know, so how some companies are solving some, uh, some great challenges, then I got quite inspired that this is something that all investors should think about. And when the awareness also in society grows around the issues that we have, then suddenly uh, the externalities that, uh, or, or the impact that a business have on society cannot longer be ignored. So for most of the time of the last 40 years, it was okay to ignore them. But when the awareness uh, in, in society around these issues increase, that is suddenly going to have a cost, both from a regulatory standpoint, but also how the consumers and how employees act. So uh, that's when I started to get quite excited around uh, the opportunity, opportunities that investors have in uh, to be part of the solution. And that's when I decided to create Summa, 
and start a fund around the philosophy of investing in, in those themes and those sectors where the challenges are significant and where there are some amazing companies and uh, founders and entrepreneurs that are solving some of these uh, challenges. At the time of, uh, of starting this 2016, were there any similar private equities around in the world that you know of? We, we were the first to, to have this thematic approach. but We also used the sustainable development goals um, in order to help screen and also work with our companies on how to look at what problem are they solving, how can, we, how can they solve it even better, and how can we uh, help them solve it uh, even better. So I do think we were, we were the first to go down that path. And how does it look now? Because that was one of your goals, I remember, to inspire other private equities to enter this route, right? I thought that when, <laughs> when I started Summa, that we were way ahead of, of this kind of curve and, and, and thinking, because I didn't see anyone else doing it. And then I'm amazed how quickly the, uh, the world has changed and also how our industry is changing. I'm very excited about the growth that we have had. So we have raised our second fund. We have 13 companies. We are 25 employees. And I also see that the rest of the industry is more and more understanding the importance of, uh, of ESG, environmental, social and governance aspects, and also the importance of being thematic and actually looking at what kind of externalities or, or impact the uh, a company has on society. The world has been changing faster than I expected. We were maybe a few months ahead of the curve, not, uh, not years, which is surprising. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm quite hopeful that we can solve some of these uh, challenges if that momentum continues and grows. Fascinating. And how, if you would like, describe the value creation uh, with the SUMA, how does that look like? So if you look at our companies, they are within resource efficiency, which is really the environmental aspects of things, so waste and recycling companies, uh, aquaculture. Uh, then we have the second theme called changing demographics, healthcare, education, uh, security. And the third is tech-enabled businesses. The businesses uh, on the tech side uh, help improve compliance and, and transparency and productivity in, uh, in society. So it's more around the governance aspects of things. So, so really our three themes are quite aligned with environmental, social and governance um, issues. So when we create values in these companies, first of all, we're looking at what problem are they solving? So either an E or an S or a G problem. Uh, how do they solve it? Are they really unique in solving that problem? If the answer is no, we're not going to buy that company. So. And then uh, when we get in as, uh, as an owner, we work uh, with, the, uh, with management and with the employees in figuring out how can we solve this problem even better and how can we help them scale up? What kind of resources do they need? So for us, it's about growth. Uh, so it's really focusing on how can we escalate uh, and, and, and grow the company and then uh, through that, solving that problem even better and then finding new innovative ways of doing it. So obviously we buy a company and then we're going to sell it after a few years. And in that period, we do want our companies to grow, but we also want them to be innovative so that uh, the next owner, uh, or whether it's an IPO or, or how we decide to exit the company, they see the value in that and that the growth can continue. And that's what's going to deliver the returns uh, to us. So it's all about making the company more successful in solving the problem that they're addressing. 
we call our investment uh, strategy private equity 4.0. So what's 1.0, 2.0, 3.0? Well, the, the whole private equity industry started in the 80s with the barbarians at the gate, starting to buy large conglomerates, taking them private, breaking them up, putting a lot of debt on it, and getting uh, capable managers in, uh, in driving those uh, business units. So then more private equity firms started to do that, and they had to do something more in order to create returns because uh, there was less conglomerates available and everyone now knew how to put more debt on the companies and uh, do financial engineering. So this was uh, in the 90s when you had the Toyota production system, Kanban, lean manufacturing. So then everyone started to also add operating improvements into their agenda on how to drive returns and performance in companies. So this is the 2.0. Then uh, the 3.0 is uh, when everyone's starting to do that and, and companies were starting to do that and, and you were then competing against not only other private equity firms in buying a company, but other companies that were acquiring uh, and consolidating industries. So you had to act more as a strategic buyer. So you had to have more competence in the industries you were buying and you had to have size and you had to have the capability to add value across the portfolio. So the whole industry started to become more institutionalized. And if you look at the, the large private equity firms, they went all went global and they had healthcare teams and they had different industry teams. So they were starting to act more strategically. So our 4.0 is what are you going to add to that? Because the best private equity firms do that uh, and do it very well. It is to start to understand how is the external world now affecting your companies and how can you take advantage of that and how can you grow companies and we're living in in times where growth is challenging. So why not focus on those themes and areas where there is growth? And why not find those companies that are growing because they're solving some of these issues? And how can you unleash the power in the organization, being more purpose-driven and attacking the problems in the right way? Mm-hmm. So that's our 4.0 model. And we work quite closely with uh, Professor George Serafim at, at Harvard, who has done much more extensive research on this. So going 20 years back in time, looking at companies that focus on the material aspects of ESG and being purpose-driven and really living sort of in this little bit of the same fashion that we do. So how do you actually let the ESG aspects uh, be embedded into your strategy and also uh, the organization and that you're real about it? And the companies, uh, and he, he has taken a large group of, um, of companies in different industries and looking at the subset that are doing it right and the subset uh, that you can compare it with. And companies that are, that are driven in this fashion, they outperform uh, and, and create uh, almost twice the returns that companies that don't focus on these aspects. So you can see it back in time that this is, this is actually a success formula that the best companies uh, have been doing. Now it's becoming more and more important. I just see the changes that have happened over the last three, four years and how, how important this is becoming to employees, uh, your business partners, the consumers. So I will, um, I be, will be very surprised if that trend doesn't accelerate rather than uh, does not continue. Is it challenging to find companies actually to invest in that also have um, not only maybe the right kind of uh, solutions to the challenges you're looking to, but that, that have the right mindset actually? Because it's, at the end of the day, mm. it's all about people. It's all about you know, what kind of management and what kind of team is, is on board at that company, right? 
Well, we are probably a little bit more fortunate in the sense that we focus on uh, small to mid-sized companies. Uh, they're usually uh, founder-led. And since we are screening the companies, looking at unique companies that are solving an issue uh, and a problem, the founder and, and the management team are usually very aligned with that purpose. So I would say I, I found it easier than I thought to find companies uh, that are aligned with our, our purpose and, uh, and thinking. When that is said, I would say that most companies haven't worked with formulating their purpose and being aware and conscious enough about it and having a methodology of, of how to embed that into their strategy. They do it naturally. So we see it's there. But it's not always that the employees, especially in large the companies are, that the employees really understand it and feel it um, and live it. So uh, we have developed a methodology of how do we work with our companies to have workshops with the employees and bringing the best uh, minds to help our companies formulate this better and making them more purpose-driven and letting you this be a very central part of the decision-making and, and their strategy plans and how they make operating decisions and the culture and, uh, in the company and how, how the company functions. Yeah, and the beauty of this, I think, is when you have this um, purpose clear to everybody in the company, it's really bringing this clarity and also self-leadership. So you, there's nothing even close to micromanaging, right, needed in any case because they're all guided by this. Yes, so you, you unleash motivation and creativity in a different way. Yeah. Uh, and that's quite powerful. Going back to the financial sector as such, what do you expect in like five years from now? How does the financial sector look like? It has immense power and has always yes. had, but yeah. is it used? I, I do see uh, that the change is happening very, very fast. Because if you go over the, over the last uh, decades, and uh, so there's an increasing question around, is capitalism working? And the shareholder paradigm, that is definitely changing quite significantly. So in every part of the financial sectors, whether it's banks, whether it's private equity, uh, whether it's public companies and public investors, we are now starting to understand that we need to incorporate what kind of impact uh, and externalities the sector and the companies that we invest in uh, create. It was okay to be agnostic to this uh, historically, partly because uh, the externalities weren't large enough and the society wasn't aware of it enough when it comes to environmental problems, for example, or social inequality. Yes, it was rising. It's been an issue for the last couple of decades but now it receives a quite different attention in the general society. So it was okay to be agnostic to how a company impacted the society. Now it's not okay anymore to be agnostic. And there's two challenges if you continue to ignore it and be agnostic to it. One is, uh, one is the risk to a company, because the consumers are going to walk away. You're not going to get the best employees if you don't uh, focus on this and, and understand it. And regulation is going to hit you at some point. On the other hand, if you look at the positive externalities you can create, the positive impact you can have, it's because you're solving an issue. And the growth opportunities in that, look in healthcare, 
looking in waste and recycling, looking in agri and, and, and food production. I mean, these are huge sectors. We're talking over a third of our economy uh, when, uh, when you look at these sectors. The opportunity are waste, they're they are amazing. So if you don't start to understand how that impact uh, and how, uh, how you can contribute positively to society, you're missing some huge growth opportunities. Everyone is starting to understand this. I think the industry is still struggling uh, with how to do it. There's a lot of focus on ESG, but ESG means a lot of different things to a lot of different companies. And there's so many frameworks, there's so many uh, ways of doing it. And, and uh, of course, you know, I'm worried that everyone is starting to do greenwashing and, and rainwashing yeah. using the sustainable development goals all over the place. But I do see that there is real change and we're still in a phase where we're just trying to figure out what's the best way forward. I'm quite optimistic that this trend and this focus and this awareness will, will continue. Let's go back to you, Rainier. What would you define as your, your passion, the, the thing that, that is so important to you that you're even willing to suffer for it if it's needed? <laughs> I've always been a problem solver. I, I, like, I like figuring out solutions to problems. You know, that has led me to, to create Summa and it's, and I can't solve all the, uh, the, the issues I see out there. So all I want to do is just be part of the change, to show that this is a better way to do it. And then hopefully then other investors can, can see the value of that and get inspired and we can start the ball uh, rolling. And, and we have. So I would say my passion is, uh, is really to be a problem solver and uh, be part of the, the change and, and feel that what I'm doing actually is having a positive uh, impact. And what would you say are, are at least some main transformational points in your life that have influenced you so the most? I would say it was the financial crisis. I've always been sort of digging into uh, literature and, and trying to understand where, where things are heading. Uh, I think I'm quite intuitive in understanding trends and, and what's happening. And that came as a surprise to me. Also, I was uh, approaching 40 years old, so something changes. Uh, you get a reflection about uh, you know, where, what your life is. And, and I had been on a path where, where, where things were going extremely well. I remember I, I was quite happy with how things were turning out in, in my life. And suddenly, the financial crisis came. And it didn't impact me much financially because our companies in Alta at that point did pretty well. But it, uh, it gave me an awareness of something that I didn't see coming, which bothers me quite significantly. So then I started to, to really uh, go into and trying to understand why, why had our industry or, or economists in, in general not, not seen this and why didn't I understand what was unfolding. And then when I started to, uh, to see how, how we were affecting the planet in a negative way, how uh, inequalities and socially this was going in the right direction and that we didn't have politicians that took the leadership in, in solving some of these uh, issues and, uh, and at the same time turning 40. That was a turning point for me. And it was, uh, I remember it, it was a very uh, emotional experience and really deciding that I had to leave the industry. So, uh, because I had been quite successful in it and it had been going very, very well. 
I remember back at Harvard, uh, all I wanted to, and then I started working for McKinsey, all I wanted was to work in private equity. And suddenly you decide that this is what you want to leave. You can't be part of it. That was a real turning point in my life. And how did the environment uh, react to that? I think very few understood what was happening. There are very, very few people, even among my friends. But it had been a process with me over some years. But I think it was, it was surprising to everyone that I, uh, I made that decision. And then it was a welcomed uh, kind of re-entry that you made a couple of years later. <clears throat> yeah, so it's, uh, and one of the reasons for that is I, I read, um, one of the books I read was uh, by a famous economist called Albert Hishman. It's a book called Exit Voice Loyalty. And it's about the choices you make in all aspects. And, and he introduced the, the idea of a voice. So I could either look at the system and, and see the flaws in it, and decided I can't do anything with it, so I'll uh, I'll be loyal to it. So that would be continue in the job uh, I had and in the industry. But I couldn't live with that. So my choice was exit. I have to leave it. So I was going to work with philanthropy and impact investing and uh, helping the, the unfortunates. So that was my exit. And when I read this book and he introduced uh, the idea of voice, and that is to be part of the system, but you're trying to change it. And then at the same time, being quite inspired by, by the companies I saw that had unique solutions to things and are really growing, was doing fantastically, both financially and, and contributing positive to society. Then I thought, yeah, that's, uh, that's maybe a better way. So then I, I did a U-turn and decided to come back into the industry and form something that could be a voice and show that this is actually a better way of, of, of thinking. And you have to think this way if you're going to perform going forward. If you're not, you, you lose out on the growth opportunity and, and there's high risk in your investment strategy. Good that you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, I mean, you've done such a great work already. So, and if you, what I think is so inspiring is that if you manage to have as many companies as possible to copy paste your, let's say, formula for creating value this yeah. way, that's really the big win. I mean, it's been fun to see. I mean, we're still only three and a half years old. So uh, George Serafim and Michael Porter at Harvard just came out with an article about uh, how ESG fails and, and what to do. And uh, we're mentioned as, uh, as an example of, uh, of what you should do. We got this award in the private equity industry now about uh, on, on our ESG approach. So we're starting to, to really get global recognition for what, we, what we're doing. And this is so much in, in, in focus now. And I, you know, we have raised two funds. We, we manage about 1.4 billion euros uh, now. So I do see the, uh, the importance of this and how investors are, are catching on and how they're looking uh, to find uh, funds that uh, have, uh, have our strategy. And there's more and more of them. So it's a lot of fun to see that we have been part of the change. Mm. We're still early in our journey. We still have to prove with our returns that uh, this is uh, the best way of, of investing. But so far, so good. <laughs> but as you mentioned already, uh, Professor Serfheim is saying that, uh, right, according to all the surveys and research, that the returns are the double for companies that are driven by purpose and yeah. driven uh, aligned with, with the SDG. Um, yeah. If you would assume that all uh, doors are open to you and you have all resources available. Is there anything in particular that you will rush to innovate or change? 
I think what the world now needs is transparency and, and clarity. The way we do it, um, and we publish this in our portfolio report, we try to find what is material for each of our companies in how they're solving a problem. And how can we measure that? And we use the SDGs because it's a good framework of 17 problem areas. And uh, there's many sub-problem areas within those. So you can, for every company, find something to link that is material to the core of their business. And then we hold our companies accountable for it, and we measure it, and we report on it. And that is having a tremendous effect in focusing the company internally on driving in that direction. What's their purpose? How can we solve that, uh, the problem they're solving in a better way? And that's uh, the non-financial reporting side of it. I think if every company in the world did that, it would do a tremendous change because you get more focus in each company on, uh, on which direction are we driving in. And it makes it more transparent for the customers, for the business partners and suppliers, and for the regulators. What uh, is this a company that we want to buy products from, for work for, or be a business partner with? And, and, and for the regulators to figure out how can they drive regulation in a change that uh, actually affects this uh, positively. So I do think if I could change something, it's the requirement around non-financial uh, reporting. And do you, do you think it's far away? It is happening in, uh, uh, in some countries. I think Scandinavia is a little bit ahead. Europe is now focusing on it. And uh, I think it will be, uh, I think the US is, is further behind. I'm a little bit less optimistic that our politicians will drive this uh, non-financial reporting through. I'm much more optimistic that the private sector will actually lead the way here. And I see the, uh, the need for that. Uh, in order to have business success, you actually need to do this. So, uh, so I am optimistic this will happen, but I would really like our, our, uh, our politicians as well to push on, on this. Will you invite them for a dialogue on this? Some of our companies are engaging with, uh, with the regulators in their aspects of so our waste and recycling companies, for example. Uh, Norsk Gemning has been spending quite a lot of time in Norway on this issue. Given everything you've done so far, um, what is your like most important belief that you carry with you as, as your like piece of truth and that maybe that can also serve as an advice to leaders? Good question. I think being humble about understanding what the issue is. I'm quite curious, I'm quite open, and I don't think I have the answers. To, to all of this. So I go through a journey. So I think uh, if I look back at why have I succeeded, it's not because I'm that brilliant and, uh, and have all the, the answers. I become aware of, uh, of the issue and then I search and inquire and uh, tap into other people's uh, knowledge and this is co-creation. So I think that has become extremely important to me. The, the value of, of co-creation in solving complex uh, issues. Interesting, when I just recently um, met with Simon Sinek that I mentioned to you, he was also describing the process of why he was writing books in general. That is not something that he's like, has an intention to write a book about something and then he does it. It's like giving birth to a baby. It's something that is born within him. 
it's normally caused of pain and frustration or something he doesn't understand mm -hmm. how to resolve or understand yeah. or how to evolve something. And then he's digging, digging, digging by, as you say, dialoguing with mm -hmm. people, reading up on things, researching everything possible. And then eventually comes out something that he needs to express in words and it comes out as a book. So it's really, as you say, it's a journey. We're all on journeys and um, and then we express the results in a different way. You do it through investments, through through collaborations and so on. He does it, does it through, you know, books and talks and uh, all kinds of things. But it's interesting uh, what you're saying, that leaders should be on a journey always because at the end of the day, nobody wants to be managed. Everybody wants to be part of, or be led, right? Yeah. And, and, and leaders are, in a way, a person who is going to places where other people have not yet been. Hmm. So you need to have that kind of courage as well. And at the same time, to always work on, you could say, self-evolution as well. Yeah. Becoming more and more aware of, of who you are and, and, and what you stand for and what's important and all of these yeah. things. And you were talking about the 40 years and so on. but. I think in general, with age, there comes this kind of, let's say, life, life wisdom that actually helps you on the journey. Yeah, at the same time, I feel I know <laughs> less and less. <laughs> yeah. so, so the old, older I get, the more uh, I, I feel the less knowledgeable I become. <laughs> but, but you also have uh, kids who are, what, 15, 20 something? Or? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you learn from them? What do you see in them? And, uh, how are they, you know, looking at this world of ours? So I think uh, they're understanding this much faster than uh, than I was. I mean, it took me forty years <laughs> before starting to understand that we do have some issues and uh, and I have choices to make if I'm part of a solution or if I'm creating that problem. I see that in my in my girls. I mean, they're they're not twenty yet and they have this awareness. And it's not because of me. It's because their whole generation yeah. is focusing on that. And they, it's extremely important to them if they are part of that solution or not. So um, deciding to be vegetarian, something they did before, uh, b before we started to reduce our meat consumption. Mm -hmm. So there are things like that where they, they just make choices and give up things where, where they could make other choices because of this. So, uh, so I do learn a lot uh, from them and seeing their decisiveness in making changes instead of just being worried about it and, and ignoring it. Yeah, in that sense, they're very concrete, very action-oriented. Yes. Action to manifest things. Do you in any way guide them? Uh... I want both for them and for everyone else, it always to be their choices. I don't know how much I influence them and how much I listen to, <laughs> but we have good discussions on it. So now when you know choosing their, their careers going forward, I do think a little bit more long term. What you know, which areas could be interesting to go into, and, and uh, you know, what do they, what fits their skills? So I, I do think the directions that they're thinking about is uh, I'm quite happy with how they're thinking about how to develop their lives. So, what do you think is the absolutely most important thing for companies to focus on right now? I would say it's to unleash the creativity. Everyone wants to be part of the solution and every person has a unique skill. And if you're able to get everyone to sort of gather around the same issue and coming it from different angles and unleash that creativity and empower the people in the organization, you can do tremendous things. 
So I do think the 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 world that we grew up in with our sort of hierarchical, top-down-driven uh, uh, way of, of planning, making decisions going forward, well, that worked when you had a sort of stable environment and not much was changing. That has to be upside down now. So I think the one thing, and it, it is a bit hard, uh, the one thing uh, I would focus on is how to unleash that creativity and get that co-creation and collaboration to work. Yeah, that's so incredibly um, important. I was just a couple of weeks ago in London and talked to um, a guy from the London School of Economics, and he was actually expressing a term uh, that he calls uh, the gift economy. The leaders need to understand that they're in a gift economy. What he means with that is exactly what you were pointing at, the human capacity that each and one of us as human beings have a set of human capabilities, like gifts. Yes. We have it. You can't say that somebody does and does not. We're just like born with it. It's just that they're different. And if you build the right environment in your company, very much based on psychological safety and, and all of yes. these things, then you they will bring 100% of themselves to work and thereby provide this you know connectivity and creativity and innovation. Uh, all of these things will happen automatically. Because my follow-up question to you was actually, so how do you do that in your own organization? We are definitely working on it. So we have one of our values are radical honesty. So uh, we are quite collaborative organization. Is psychological safety at a high level? No, it's not yet. Uh, so we are uh, we are still a young firm. We're developing. We uh, we had uh, over ten people coming in to Suma this year. So always when you're forming something, not everyone knows what the culture is quite like. You know, who can I talk to? Is it okay for me to say this? Yeah. So this is a journey. And we're working quite hard on it, and I found it more difficult than I thought it was. But I do see the power of it. We have different teams, and we work in a way where, where, where you, you can be a member of different teams. And I do see that you know, some teams have gotten to a level of psychological safety where things are working extremely well, where you can challenge each other, where, uh, where you're not afraid of saying anything. And you can be uh, radically honest with each other. Mm. And then I see other areas where, where we have more new employees, where it hasn't formed quite yet, where they haven't gotten to that uh, level yet. Mm. There, there, there isn't a magic formula, not even in, in, in a small company like us, where, where we do have focus on it and uh, where we work on it uh, every day. But Rini, just as a final um, big, big question, uh, what do you think the world needs most at this time? I think it's leaders that are willing to pave the way into a new landscape. The world has changed so, so fast now with the awareness of the, the big problems that we have. We do need leaders from the private sector who take charge on, on showing that way. So that, that I think is the most, most important right now. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much for, for sharing everything. And you've done uh, amazing work with uh, Suma already, so really congratulations for that on, on behalf of all of us, because in a way you are indirectly influencing so many other people through all, the, all of your companies. So Rene, how was it to be on the podcast? It's always fun to have this uh, conversation. <laughs> well, in always, we've just done it once before. But it is a very engaging uh, topic and, and you ask some uh, very relevant and, uh, and good questions 
which also helps me to reflect. <laughs> so I've learned something uh, during this podcast from the questions you asked and, and, and forcing me to reflect on it. Mm. So thank you for that. Thank you, Rainier. Thanks for sharing everything. And um, to find out more, uh, people can head to summaequity.com. And uh, of course, you can also follow Rainier on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter, at Rainier Indal. You will find all links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast, and share this episode with people you know who would benefit from hearing Rainier. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. And thanks so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose. And remember to unplug. Ciao. Thank you.